Morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. So this is what we call the Bible reading plan. Um, hopefully you were able to grab one of these last week and have already been kind of living into that throughout the past week. If not, I would encourage you uh, to find someone this morning, maybe out in the Connection Center, who can uh, put you into contact with one of these babies so that you can take them home and uh, be reading them because it's going to be really important that beyond what we do here on Sunday morning through the sermon time, that you be actually reading and studying this uh, on your own individually as well as maybe corporately as a small group or whatever the case might be, but, but that you be living in this book of Romans. Because I'm just going to tell you, um, it's, it's a little heavy, right? In fact, uh, even as a minister of 16 years who uh, is, I guess, what you would call theologically trained, although if you know me, you know that doesn't always play itself out in my life, but... Um, but anyway, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was tough for me this week, um, writing this sermon and kind of, you know, reading through just the first two chapters of Romans and really, um, you know, getting down to the nitty gritty, like what exactly is it that the Apostle Paul is saying to us? So I just think it would be helpful if you were doing a little background work on your own before you come here on Sunday morning. So I encourage you uh, to do that for sure. Hey, before I get started this morning, I just want to give a little shout out um, to a restaurant here in our uh, great city of Cincinnati called Cooper's Hawk. Anybody ever been there before? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I got to go there for the first time on Friday night. Uh, my wife has gone uh, on multiple occasions without me. Um, yeah, those of you who've been there know why you're laughing. Uh, but anyway, she's been there without me, but uh, we got invited with some friends uh, here at church, and uh, they told me several times I should use some of our conversation as sermon material, but uh, I kind of decided this week that what happens at Cooper Hawk should stay at Cooper's Hawk, so I'm not, uh, not going to bring any of that up in my sermon, except to tell you, have you ever heard of the deep fried rib? Yeah, neither had I, but that's what I had Friday night to eat the deep fried rib. In fact, uh, they asked, what is your special tonight? And she said, we have deep fried ribs. And it was as if the clouds had parted and the gates of heaven had opened. And I heard a voice saying to me, Matt, you will eat the deep fried rib. So I did, and it was enjoyable. So uh, I encourage you to go out there at some point. Hey, let's get to it. Romans chapter one uh, and chapter two this morning. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to uh, follow along with me. If not, then just uh, hang on, right? Because after spending, um, well, first of all, let me, let me do a little background work here. So Romans, we call it a book, but it's also really a what? A letter, right? And it's a letter because it was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, right? Okay, so you're, you're with me so far. But the question is, why did Paul write the letter to Rome? Uh, why did he write a letter to Roman Christians? Well, he tells us right off the bat um, why he writes it right? And after spending the first 15 verses of chapter 1 kind of making his greetings and introduction, Paul dives right into this theme, this theme of this letter. And, and I read this actually last week. For those of you who were here uh, for, for Back to School Bash, uh, you got to hear me share this verse, but it's Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and then I'm also going to read 17. And Paul says, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter to Rome, to the Roman Christians, was to teach the great truths of the gospel of grace 
to believers who had really never received apostolic instruction. You see, Rome was one of the churches that Paul never actually got to visit in one of his uh, missionary endeavors. And so he wanted to give them apostolic instruction, and the easiest way for he to do that, uh, for him to do that, was in a letter. So for this reason, the book of Romans is still today, actually, the foremost exposition on God's grace and the righteousness that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's where we kind of get that language of by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This letter, its teaching and its theology, has literally laid the foundation for much of the Christian faith. Romans is a book with the power to actually set a person free. Whether you're struggling with shame because of certain life choices that you've made, or whether you're trying to um, prove your worth to God by the things that you do, understanding this letter can change your perspective, and it can change your life. So I, for one, am really thankful that we're going to spend eight weeks in it, right? Because hopefully at the end of eight weeks, we'll have people who are a part of this congregation, who've maybe been a part of this congregation for decades, who will say, my life has been transformed, my life has been changed as a result of our reading together this book of Romans. So with that being said, who's ready to jump in? You ready to jump in? How many of you like experiencing life change? Like, that's a good thing for you, right? Oh, boy! Yeah, what, what is that... Uh, what is that show where they're like, challenge, right? Whatever that is. That's, that's how I feel right now, right? I feel like the challenge has been given, okay? You're going to like this change, I promise. So in our Bible reading plan, as I alluded to earlier this week, we've been living in the first two chapters of Romans, okay? And so the same is true for this morning. I'm going to spend my time with you breaking down several passages of Scripture from the first two chapters in Romans, okay? So we're going to start in verses 18 through 22. Paul says, so follow, follow along as best you can. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people, this is a line you might want to get, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So, after introducing the righteousness which comes from God, Paul presents the overwhelming evidence of man and woman's sinfulness, underscoring how desperately each of us needs the righteousness that only God can provide. Paul explains here in these first few verses that all people, so you, I, every one of us, are trapped in the spiral sin of selfishness right? The spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, turning from God to idolatry, which results in destructive behavior. So what is Paul saying in layman's terms? What is, what is Paul saying in Kentucky boy terms, right? He's saying, we done did messed up, right? We messed up. So in the United Methodist Church, 
We believe that God created human beings in God's image. Amen? God created human beings in God's image. We also believe that all humans need to be in relationship with God in order to be fully human. In other words, to be all that God really intended for us to be, we have to have relationship with God, the Creator. We believe that humans can also choose whether to accept or reject a relationship with God. We call that free will. We believe that again and again and again and again, we break the covenant relationship between God and us. We turn our backs on God and on God's expectations for us. We deny our birthright, the life of holiness and wholeness for which we were created. And we call all of this alienation from God, we call that sin, right? I mean, in layman's terms, what is sin? Sin is the bad things we do. Sin is the poor choices that we make. Sin is the unwise decisions. Basically, sin is anything that we do to dishonor God, right? Now, we as humans have a tendency to differentiate between sins. For instance, a person who tells a lie or cheats on a test is in no way subject to the same level of of judgment and punishment as a person who has committed murder, right? Well, so that answer to that is really both yes and no, okay? While it is true that a murderer would face a much stiffer punishment on earth for their crime than someone who simply tells a lie or, or cheats on a test, the Bible speaks of the punishment or wage, in this case, of all sin in Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 as being death, Right? I mean, Romans 3.23, we're going to read a little bit further into the book, but says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wage of our sin is death, right? And so equal punishment for all sin, whatever it might be. In James chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That's humbling. What's the point? The point is that we are all guilty of having broken the law and therefore of committing sin, right? So that's the first thing Paul wants us to get. In Romans chapter 1, verses 29 and 32, we read a little bit further, we read this. Paul says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Now, just in case you're listening and reading through this list and you're thinking to yourself, all right, so far I'm pretty good. (laughs) Here we go. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I just wanted to slow that one down. (laughs) They disobey... They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So again, above all else, Paul wants his readers to understand that they were, in fact, sinners. The verdict, guilty. And what is the consequence of our sin? Well, death, for sure, right? But even more so, Paul brings up this topic in chapter 1 of God's wrath. Now, we don't often speak about God's wrath, right? I mean, 
we kind of want to pretend that God is some cosmic teddy bear, right? And that he is only gentle and compassionate and merciful and forgiving. But truth be told, church, God is both loving and just. That's who God is. Paul makes one thing abundantly clear in chapter 1 of Romans, and that is that God is angry about sin. He gets upset about it. He does not like it when people substitute the truth about him with some fantasy of their own imagination. This is not merely an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing. And it's not merely a New Testament thing. It's a 2018 thing. There were people in Paul's day, and there are most certainly people in our own day, who have stifled the truth that God reveals in order to pretty much believe anything that supports their own self-centered lifestyles. God's heart is to remove sin and to restore the sinner, but he can only do so as long as the sinner does not stubbornly distort or reject his truth. So now we turn the page to Romans chapter 2, and in verse 1 of Romans chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same thing. So imagine this. Imagine as if Paul is using chapter 1, which he really is, to address the Gentile Christian, right? Now in chapter 2, he's going to get down to business with the Jewish Christian. In Romans chapter 1, Paul addresses the Gentile. Now in chapter 2, he switches attention to the Jew. Paul wanted the Jews to know that they were just as guilty as the Gentiles. The same law that they used to pass judgment on the Gentiles condemned them as well. You may remember that Jesus said something similar in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 7, 2, he says, For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure that you use, it will be measured to you, right? So we skip ahead to verse 3 of Romans chapter 2, and Paul says this. He says, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will somehow escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is what's intended to lead you to repentance. You see, there were Jews in Paul's day who literally believed themselves to be outside the realm of God's judgment. They believed at the very least that God would be extremely patient with them because, after all, they were God's chosen people. And while it is true that God is gracious and that God is patient, there were Jews who were beginning to abuse the good nature of God. Now, I know that never happens in our day and time, right? We never abuse God's patience. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I'm I'm not the type of guy who typically quotes people, especially people as smart and as intelligent as Charles Spurgeon. I'd be more likely to quote Charlie Brown. But in this case, we're going to follow. So read along. I love this. He, He says, It seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still callous and finds himself outside of hell, the sunlight then seems to say, I shine on thee yet another day. 
as that in this day thou mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest, that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of bread that comes to your table seems to say, I have to support your body that still you may have space for repentance. Every time you open the Bible, the pages say, we speak with you that you may repent. Every time you hear a sermon, if it be a sermon as God would have us to preach, it pleads with you to turn unto the Lord and live. What is Spurgeon saying? What he's saying, I think, is the same thing that I am asking us this morning, and that is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? God has been more than patient waiting on his children to repent, to turn away from their sin, and to turn towards him. Why do we make it so complicated? We read these words of Paul, beginning in verse 6 of Romans chapter 2. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, yes, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, this is where I kind of was like, put on the spiritual brakes, right? Because what Paul seems to be saying when you first start reading this passage is that maybe salvation is by works, not by grace through faith. But those of us who've read the whole of Romans, those of us who've read the whole of Scripture know that that is not the case, right? Paul is in no way saying that here. So what is he trying to say? Well, again, we have to consider Paul's audience, right? In chapter 2, Paul is speaking directly to Jews. Paul explains that while all humanity is hopelessly trapped and guilty before God, the Jews are actually even guiltier of sin because they have the Torah, the law, and should therefore know better. He admonishes the Jews that living by the law and circumcision does not make them righteous in God's eyes. Why? Because they cannot possibly keep it. I mean, if someone genuinely did good at all times, then I guess he could merit eternal life of his own accord. But there is none because all in some way or another are, have been, or will be self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but rather they obey unrighteousness. The Jewish person or the religious person may think that he is saved because he has the law. But the question is, has he kept it? Likewise, the Gentile may think that he is saved because he does not have the law, but he, he, he uh, kept the dictates of his own conscience. Or, but has he kept the dictates of his own conscience? Sorry. Paul wanted the Christians in Rome to understand that judgment for sin can come with or without the law. 
You may remember that Jesus told some self-righteous Jews this story in Luke chapter 18. He said, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone, Jesus told this parable. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, right? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but rather he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So listen to me, church. What what is Paul saying? He's saying, you know what? You can be good. I would say the same thing. You can be good. I want to encourage you to be good, right? Go do it. Go be good. In fact, go be really, really good. But guess what? You can't be good enough. We can't be good enough. So let's break down one more part. Romans chapter 2. We're wrapping up here. Verses 28 and 29. Paul says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. In Paul's day, some rabbis taught that God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another, and that all Israelites will somehow have a part in the world to come. Paul professes that a true Jew is one that has experienced circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. God rightly judges each person for what they have done, regardless of whether they are a Jew or a Gentile, looking at the intents of their hearts. But God's intent is to not merely judge the world's sin, but also to set right the sinner. And that's precisely what we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about in this series. So the question is, you begin to examine yourself as you begin to think about kind of where we're going in this, is, is what is the intent of your heart? What is the intent of my heart? Are the good works in my life a a feeble attempt to earn God's favor? Or are they simply a byproduct of a heart that bleeds for Jesus? You see, we are all sinners in need of God's mercy and grace. And it is time for us to examine our hearts and to see who really reigns there. And so I invite you to do that now as we pray. God, Thank you for your good work. Thank you for your word. And God, for all of the mysteries that it helps us to understand and to explore. And God, uh, I just pray that right now in this room, in this, in this time of quiet, God, that we would each examine our hearts. That we would look closely at who sits on the throne of our heart. God, that we would look closely at our life that we would say, am I a person who is striving to be good for goodness sake? Just to earn favor with you? Or am I a person who is seeking to live as Christ would live 
out of my love and admiration and respect and honor for you. God's salvation is by grace through faith. Lord, every man and every woman and every boy and every girl in this room, no matter how young or how old, is guilty. We're guilty of sin. We're guilty of disobeying you, of dishonoring you. And Father, every person here is in need of repentance. We need to turn away from that sin and turn our hearts and our minds and our attention back to you. So God, help us in this time as we stand together as the church, as we stand together as the body of Christ, united. God, we talked about it last week. Help us to affirm our need for you. Help us to reject the sin in our life. And God, help us to repent and to get ourselves on track with you. God, it's necessary. It's a necessary step in this journey through Romans, but it's also a necessary step in this journey through life. God, may we put sinful ways behind us so that we can begin to live out the life that you've called us to live. It's in the powerful, precious name of Christ I pray.